about going to church and all of this. And Dolly Parton made this statement. Well, honey, God don't care which one you go to so long as you show up. And that's the attitude and the mindset of so many people in our world today. And God really doesn't care as long as you go. And most of the time, the as long as you go part is optional. In their minds, God does not really care. I read a statement that said, if your God lets you do anything you want to do, then your God is you. And to so many people in the world, even the religious world, their God is themselves. Because their God will let them do just about anything they want to do, believe anything they want to believe, preach anything they want to preach, worship any way they want to worship, and still be acceptable to Him. But God has standards in mind for us. He lets us know in His Word that denominationalism is wrong. But how do we know that from His Word? God's Word doesn't say, Thou shalt not practice denominationalism. It doesn't say that this religious group or that religious group is wrong in an out-and-out fashion. How do we know that God does not approve of what the religious world holds up to be an ideal standard? That is, you can go your way, I can go mine, I'm okay, you're okay. Attend the church of your choice, and it'll be acceptable to God. How do we know that the Bible proclaims that to be an unwholesome standard and one that violates the principles of God? First, we know that because of the prayer Jesus prayed. Many people have the idea that the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 that he gave to his disciples is the Lord's prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on. That's not the true Lord's prayer as we confront it in Scripture. That's to be found in John chapter 17 where Jesus was literally praying himself to God. Now the model prayer in Matthew 6 is what he gave to his disciples as a model for them to go by and they're praying. Interesting that when they heard Jesus pray, they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples to pray. No doubt in worshiping, they had heard Jesus sing, but we don't find anywhere in Scripture where they said, Lord, teach us to sing. They had heard the master teacher teach and preach. And they didn't say to him, as recorded in Scripture, Lord, teach us to preach. He was doing that. But they did say to him, teach us to pray. I'm sure you have men and you have heard men in the past, maybe that have made an indelible oppression upon you, because of the way they prayed. And you could tell by the way they prayed in public that they did a good deal of that in private as well. And they made an impression upon you. I know I've had those. Because of the way they prayed. But in the prayer that Jesus prayed, he said in John 17, 20 and 21 to the Father, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that thou also may be one in us. Now, if that's the only passage we had today to help us to understand or to clarify this idea of how God feels about religious division, that should be sufficient. We should be able to read those two passages, John 17, 20, and 21, and close our books and have our minds closed to the fact that God accepts anything else other than complete unity. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, nine thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You see, Jesus prayed for unity and not division. Matthew 12 and verse 25, Jesus said, Every kingdom divided against itself shall be brought to desolation, and every house or city divided against itself shall not stand. That just stands to reason. That's common sense. If we're divided amongst ourselves, then we're not going to stand united as one against a common enemy. If we're divided as a congregation, we can't stand totally together in conflict against error against the forces of Satan. If we're divided as a nation, as we are in our country today, we can't stand opposed to 
those things which will benefit the unity of our country. We can't be divided then as the church, as the kingdom, as we understand it from God's word, or else we're in competition with ourselves. We become our own worst enemies. We become divided as a kingdom and therefore will not stand. You know, that's interesting because Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give thee the keys of the kingdom, he said to Peter. There in Matthew 16 and verse 19. We know from the combination of those two passages, it's a parallel passage as we talked about this morning, a parallel passage in which the church and the kingdom are words that refer to the same institution. Jesus said, I'll build my church and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. He could have reversed those words and said, I'll build my kingdom and give you the keys of the church. It would have been the same thing. Talking about the same institution. And so we know the church and the kingdom is the same thing, but it's interesting in light of that, that Jesus made this statement, every kingdom divided against itself should be brought to desolation. That includes his own. If the kingdom of Christ is divided, and it's man's fault that it is, of course, then that will be brought to desolation. The world in general does not see Christianity as a, as a force like it ought to, because Christianity, and I say that in a very loose sense, is so divided. 38,000 religious denominations. The world does not see that as a unifying force. They do not see that as the standard that God would have it to be and as it would be if all who are divided were to be united. And the only way we can be united is, of course, upon the Word of God. John 10 and verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Jesus prayed in John 17, 20, remember, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art me and I in thee. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Well, a question then, is there any division in deity? Is there any division between Christ the Son, God the Father? None whatsoever. Jesus said that they all may be one as we are one. And yet that is not the case when we look at the religious world. John 15, verses 1 to 7, there is a discussion there by Jesus about the vine and the branches, of course. Those in the religious world maintain that the branches there are denominations. Those are different denominations acceptable to God. But in that context, Jesus speaks of the individual. The individual being divine and not denominations. And so we know from the study of that passage that it's not approval of denominationalism. In fact, it's a condemnation of that. Jesus said, I am the vine and ye are the branches. Ye being those individuals. Every branch in me that beareth fruit, he purges that may bring forth more fruit. And every branch that brings forth not fruit or doesn't bring forth fruit, he going to bring it to desolation. He's going to have it be condemned. And then he said later on in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot abide of itself except it be in the vine, neither can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he repeated. And he said, He, he that abideth in me and I in him. Notice the personal pronouns. He. Not denominations, but individuals. We know from this and other discussions by Jesus then that denominationalism is not acceptable in his sight. True unity can be obtained and maintained only by abiding in his word. Now, there are others that claim to do that. In fact, every Christian, quote-unquote, religious group maintains the Bible as its standard, and yet the unity is not there. And that's because we have defiled his word by making changes where we ought not. Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth, John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. How do we know that God does not approve of denominationalism? First, by the prayer Jesus prayed. But second, we know that's the case because of the platform the Spirit laid. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul said, There's one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is 
above all and through all and in you all. The very outset of that, Peter said there is one body. When we examine what the scriptures teach, the body and the church are one and the same, of course. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And have put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. No denying the fact then that the body and the church are one and the same. If we were to illustrate that today, the body in religious terms, here's how we might do that. If we look at Christianity, quote unquote, as the religious world claims it to be, there are two distinct divisions, Catholicism and Protestantism. Catholicism could be pictured in this fashion. If we had a being here that had two heads, one Jesus, the head in heaven, two the Pope, the head on earth, and one body, the Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. And so the one universal or Catholic Church, two heads. You ever see anything like that? Not in nature, not in driving down the road you don't see that. You might see something pickled in a jar in a museum somewhere that has two heads because it's an oddity. It's a monstrosity. It's not something that exists in nature. We don't expect to see two heads on one body. And then we turn to the idea of Protestantism and we have a being that has one head, Jesus as the head of the church, but it has many bodies and they're called by many and very different names. You likely passed several of them on your way here. Ever seen anything like that with one head and many bodies? Again, it's an oddity if you have. It's, a, it's an exception to the rule because the rule is one body and one head. And that's what we find in Scripture. The platform the Spirit laid is that there is one body, and that body, of course, is the church of Jesus Christ. And all who are in it are indeed Christians. The writer says in, in Ephesians 3 and verse 6 that the Gentiles should be heirs of the same kingdom. We're to walk by the same rule, mind the same things, Philippians 3 and verse 16. We're to have the same spirit of faith, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 13. We're to be of the same household. 1 Timothy 3.15, we noticed it this morning. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou hast behaved thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. If we take our time and examine these passages like this one in Matthew 16, 18, and others, and look at the pronouns that are there and the words and the number of them, we'll see the singular nature of it. Jesus said upon this rock in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, my Possessive in nature, church, singular in number. If we look at what we found in Colossians 1, that there is one body, uh, Ephesians 4, that the body is the church, Colossians 1 and verse 18, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, again, singular in number. There is but one body, there is but one church, and all who are part of it are Christians. We have the same standard, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. Paul said to Timothy, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. It's the same standard. It's amazing to me that we can do other things by the same rule book and come out the same way. Several years ago, it made news when the Cuban nationals came to the United States and played in a baseball game. I think it was Washington, D.C. where they played, but one of those central locations. Most of those Cubans who came could not speak English. They spoke Spanish, of course, as their national language. But it was interesting that Cuban nationals who had never been to our country could come here and we could play a game, even though our languages were not the same, but we could play the game by the same standards. You see, the length from home plate to first base in Cuba is the same as it is in America. The distance from the pitcher's mound to the home plate is the same in Cuba as it is in America. Why? Even though the book was, is written in different languages, it teaches the same thing. 
The baseball is the same size there as it is here. The bat dimensions and so forth. All of those particulars are the same. And even though we couldn't speak the same languages, those people came and they played a baseball game in which none of the rules were different. Why? Played by the same standard. Why is it today that we can do that in regards to sports? We can do that in regards to many other areas in life. And yet when it comes to God's Word, somehow we just can't seem to get it alike. Contrary to the prayer Jesus prayed. Contrary to the platform that the Spirit laid. That they all may be one. And again, if we only had this passage, there is one body. That ought to settle the issue for all time and for all occasions and for all men. That there is but one church. Because we can determine from the Bible that the body and the church are one and the same. We know that denominationalism is, does not please God because of the prayer Jesus prayed. That they all may be one. Because of the platform the Spirit laid, there is one body. We also know that's the case because of the price the Lord paid. In Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul, speaking to the elders of Ephesus on the island of Miletus, said to them on that occasion, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God. Now, the American Standard Version says the church of the Lord, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now we know from the latter portion of that verse, which he had purchased with his own blood, that the church under consideration is the church for which Jesus died. Now the King James is right when it says the church of God. The American Standard is right when it says the church of the Lord. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he had purchased with his own blood. Think about the purchase price for the church. It cost Jesus his blood. And again, this afternoon, if that's the only passage we had in all of Scripture that taught us anything about the church, we could see the importance of it because of the purchase price of it, the price of Jesus' blood. And there is not a single denomination extant in the world today, nor has there ever been one that existed, that can claim that Jesus purchased it with his own blood. That's a reality when we examine truth, but it's not a very comfortable thing to talk about in the presence of those who are engaged in denominationalism. It's not something that they will readily accept. It and only it, that is the church, purchased with the blood of Jesus. Thus purchased, it belongs to him, it is his. It's not man's, thus it's not left up to us to dictate the terms of entrance, not left up to us to direct the affairs of those who are part of it. Oh, that's a matter of the law, if you will. All of that's a matter of the rule book. And we can to use that illustration, play the same game today that was played in the first century. We can engage in the same activities that they engaged in, be the same people they were, be called by the same names they were called by, and the terms of entrance have never changed. You see, according to the price that the Lord paid, this institution is worth more than all the world. In Acts 4 and verse 12, Neither is there salvation in the other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It and only it was purchased by the blood of Christ. Colossians 3.17 Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of, that is by the authority of, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be the be all and end all of it all. In 2 John verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And as we noticed earlier today, Matthew 15, 9, but in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men.
The blood of Jesus, God's only Son, purchased the church. As such, He is its head. It is His body, as we've noticed. How many heads? How many bodies? One of each. Stands to reason. That's the natural order. And, of course, that's the spiritual order as well. Christ never built a single denomination. He never died for one of them, but only for the church of the Lord. Every denomination then is a product of mankind. I've written an article for the bulletin at home, and the article is entitled, If the answer is yes, just say no. And in that, this question is posed, do I have to be a member of your church in order to go to heaven? Now, if you ask someone that question, they tell you no, or, or, in other words, or the, or the question is, is your church essential? Let me, get my, let me get my question right. If the answer is yes, just say no. Can I go to heaven without being a member of your church? That's the question. Now, if they answer that question, yes, you can go to heaven without being a member of this church, then just say no to it. Why? Because the answer to the question spiritually, can, can you go to heaven without being a member of the Lord's church? The answer is no. To that we must say yes then. That is, we must say yes to being a part of it. Because it is essential. It was purchased with his blood. Ephesians 5 tells us that he is the Savior of the body. Singular notice in nature. He's the only one, the only Savior, of the church, the only one of its kind. That's the only institution that's going from earth to heaven. The church. It's the only institution that's going from Jasper, Alabama, to an eternity in heaven. The church of the Lord. We have to be a part of it to go to heaven. And so if someone says, no, you don't have to be a member of this church to go to heaven, then just say no to that, because you do have to be a member of the body of Christ. It was purchased with his blood. Why do we know that denominationalism is unacceptable to God? Because the prayer Jesus prayed, they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. Because the platform the Spirit laid, there is one body. Because of the price Jesus paid, his own blood. But finally, this afternoon... We can know that denominationalism is unacceptable to God because of the plea Paul made. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, a congregation here riddled with division, a congregation with many problems, the church at Corinth. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we read the New Testament, the majority of it is written to those who are already members of the church. And the majority of that that is written to members of the church involves problems that they were having. So it was with the church at Corinth. But in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul said, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all present your... I'm getting Romans 12 mixed up with it. I tell you, that food's going to get me, and it's doing it. Now I beseech you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Notice what Paul asked these people on this occasion. He said, I know you're, there's division there. It's been told me that there's division among you. Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. Others are saying, I'm of Apollos. Others, I'm of Cephas. And others of you are saying, I'm of Christ. Well, in, in essence, then they were saying, I'm a Paulite Christian. I'm an Apollosite Christian. I'm a Cephas or a Peterite. And others were saying, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. He asked the rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Well, to ask was to answer, of course. No, Christ is not divided. But then notice the questions, and it's interesting that Paul asked them because of that. Is Christ divided? No. 
was Paul crucified for you? You see, in order for them to be able to say truthfully, I am of Paul, number one, Paul had to be crucified for you. That would be the case with Apollos as well, or Cephas, or any other man. And then he said, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, in order for them truthfully to say, I am of Paul, and that to be acceptable to God, Paul had to be crucified for them, and number two, they had to be baptized in the name of Paul. Well, today, in order for me to say I am of Christ, two things at least have to be in place. Christ had to be crucified for me. I have to be baptized in the name of Christ. The religious world will nullify the last, or they will say that it's not true, that all that has to be right is for Christ to have died for you. But Paul, in speaking of these of Corinth, said you have to be baptized into Christ as well. We know that to be the case. But notice that these individuals were in division. They were in the same building, if you will. They were listening to the same sermons, and yet there was division there. They were saying, I, you know, I, I'm a Paulite. Today we could imagine that 38,000 times manifold. We can readily list the names of those denominations of the world, begun by man, founded upon the doctrines of men, while all the time claiming to be founded upon Christ. But it violates the plea that Paul made here on this occasion. I beseech you that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. You see, God does not approve of denominationalism. We know that because of the plea that Paul made. Christ divided. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, certainly none of those were true. Paul wasn't crucified for them. They weren't baptized in the name of Paul, and Christ was not divided and is not divided. We know that God does not approve of denominationism because of the prayer Jesus prayed. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. Thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. Notice this last statement by Jesus, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. No wonder there's such division in the world. Because there's so much division in what the world calls Christianity. And Jesus said that would be a proof that to the world that I've been sent by you, Father. That is, if all are directed by the same standard. If all believe the same things and proclaim the same things and obey the same things, the world will believe. But the world doesn't because of the division, because of the prayer Jesus prayed. But also because of the platform the Spirit laid. There is one body. One spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. Not only that, but also because of the price the Lord paid. He paid his own blood for the church. And as we mentioned this morning, you can't join it to save your life. Acts 2 and verse 47 says, Praising God, have faith with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You can't join the church of Christ to save your life, but you'll have to be added to it to save your soul. That's something God does, and He doesn't make any mistakes. He's not going to add us to the Paulite church or the Apollosite church. He's not going to add us to any one of the myriads of denominations in existence today. He's going to add us to his church. And I can't join it to save my life. But in order for my soul to be saved, I'll have to be added to it by the Lord. And finally, God does not approve of denominationalism, and we know that because of the plea that Paul made, that there be no divisions among you that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment, speaking the same things. Denominationalism within itself, the very framework of it, the very definition of it means division. 
There's division in this religious world today. And we need to stand opposed to it because we love the souls of men, because we love our God and what He's told us to do, and because we want to see people go to heaven. You can't go to heaven by being a part of a man-made religious group. It has to be the church of our Lord. And men have to be added to that, and they can only be added to it once they've done what the Lord tells them to do. We can be united today, but it's only by this book that we'll do so, by obedience to it, to it and adherence to its every precept. I'm thankful for the congregation here that stands upon this truth. It's always a joy to preach before a congregation that has had truth preached to it for so long and appreciates truth. And I'm glad you have Mark here to do that and others who preach the truth on a regular basis for you. You should be thankful for that as well. If we're going to stand where the Bible stands, then we're going to have to stand on its pattern. We're going to have to believe the things that they believe because we're taught the things they're taught. And we're going to have to obey the things they obeyed because that's what's in the plan that they were taught. This afternoon, the plan of salvation has not changed. Though today, unlike the first century, there are some 38,000 religious groups, many of which will tell you different things about salvation. But the Bible still says the same thing. Same thing it did in the days of Paul and Peter and James and John and all of those men who presented truth initially to the world, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And that is that a person has to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. John eight twenty four. Jesus' words themselves, except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. We know that faith is required by God, but faith only is not, as, not, uh, not essential or not necessary, not uh, adequate to accomplish salvation. We know that we must repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3. In the words of Jesus, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all that dwelt at Jerusalem? Then he repeated those words, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Same repentance that was called for 2,000 years ago, called for today as well. We must confess the name of Christ before men, Romans 10 and verse 10, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. The mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus said, if you do not confess me before men, then I'll deny you before my Father. Matthew 10 and verse 32. Same confession that the eunuch made as we studied this morning. I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, commanded and demanded of them is the same confession commanded and demanded of us today. They were baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. To wash their sins away, Acts 22 and verse 16, in the blood of Jesus, Revelation 1 and verse 5. They were saved when they were thus baptized, 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. And the rules of the game, if you will, have not changed. Though there are vague denominations that will teach you otherwise, the Bible still reveals that baptism doth also now save us. And this afternoon there may be someone here who's never rendered obedience to the gospel of Christ. And today you'll have to be added to the body of Christ, that church which he purchased with his blood, in order to go to heaven. And you'll have to maintain faithfulness therein in order to obtain that eternal reward. Revelation 3 and verse 20. Be faithful unto death. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day, not to me only, to all them that love is appearing. Faithfulness to death. We'll have to be a part of that body, added thereto by the Lord, based upon our obedience to His plan. We'll have to remain faithful to that, and that includes our attitude and actions. We'll then obtain that eternal reward. The Lord does not approve of denominationalism.
If the only thing we had about that was the prayer of Jesus in John 17, that should suffice. If the only knowledge we had about that was the platform that the Spirit gave to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, wherein is contained the idea of one body, that should be sufficient. If the only concept that we had about that was the price that Jesus paid, as revealed in Acts 20 and verse 28, he shed his blood to purchase the church. That ought to be enough. But if the only thing we had about that was the plea that Paul made in 1 Corinthians 1, that there be no division but perfect unity. If we took just one of any of those four, that would be enough for us to determine denominationalism is wrong and that there must be unity in the body of Christ. But when we combine all four of those together, what a powerful statement it makes. God does not approve of denominationalism. We must be added to the church of Christ in order to be saved. It was purchased with his blood. And it is prescribed and described for us in his word. This afternoon you can be a part of that. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, we urge you to be added to the Lord's church by the Lord himself based upon your obedience. If you're a member of his body but you've turned away, back in the fold of safety and like those of Revelation 2 in the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. And why not return to him this afternoon? Why not do so as together we stand and sing this song of encouragement? Now.